morning welcome happy sabbath again as always a pleasure to be with you a pleasure and an honor to be allowed into your homes or maybe you're carrying us in your phone or watching us at work hopefully you're not watching us while driving thank you to all of you who say i rush from church to get to hear your conversation we are just overwhelmed overwhelmed by how appreciative you are and we are just so, so blessed by you, by each one of you. Uh, today, we want to thank Donna for her lovely message. Uh, Donna in the Central Coast that, is being, that has been playing phone tag with my colleague, Pastor Joey. Uh, Donna, we're so happy that you're watching, and we hope uh, that sometime our phones get to collide and coalesce into a real conversation. But until then, know that we've received your message, and this is why we do what we do. So may you have a blessed Sabbath and a blessed rest of the week. As we always do, today we get to talk about hope. And so I am very excited to share this with you because we seem to live in times where hope is in short supply. And so as we bow down and pray, I would just invite you to conjure up images of hope. Let us pray. Father, thank you for hope, for hope everlasting. And whether it's Donna in the Central Coast or whether it's David watching us a week behind, or whether it's Mike rushing to church to catch a glimpse of what we do, Lord. Just bless. Bless their lives. Bless everyone who is watching or viewing us. Bless us and fill us with hope. Be with our conversation, we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, the great hope, hmm. the great hope that we have is Jesus. And so we, we get to talk a little bit about hope. How was your week? My week was good. You know, every week I'm reminded what a privilege it is to serve at this church, to be a part of the ministry that happens here, to have these conversations with you and to interact with members like Donna and, and others, whether they're here or they're connecting with us from mm -hmm. afar. It's, it's truly a privilege to be a part of this and to be a part of communicating the hope that Jesus has for us. Isn't that incredible? I love the way that you wove that hope into this into this welcome to our, to our viewers and our friends. Yes, the hope that we have in Jesus, which is uh, the running theme, I think. We started with, with death, and we mm. talked about the cross, and then we moved into resurrection, and the resurrection of Jesus. And today, well, today we get to talk about that great hope. Mm. So hope is, I think, a word that gets thrown around a lot in our current conversations. Um, we talk about hope all the time. Um, 
as you know, uh, here in, in the U.S., we celebrated or we had to endure, depending on your particular predilection, uh, our midterm elections. And regardless of what political party you subscribe to, it seems like the one thing that they can agree on mm -hmm. is that the world is hopeless mm -hmm. and that they represent the last and best hope for, uh, for a future. And so... I was listening to a few speeches uh, last week from both sides uh, as some people not only are celebrating uh, their victories, but are also tossing their hat into the potential uh, election season that now we have to endure mm -hmm. uh, as our presidential election comes, cycle comes around in two years. Everybody was talking about hope. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like that hope was contingent on you aligning with a certain set of ideals, and that if you didn't align with those ideals, then hope wasn't for you. Mm. And I find that really different than what we found in our lesson today, because it seems like the hope uh, that Paul talks about, uh, or the hope that uh, Jesus will talk about in our primary text for today, uh, is a hope that is universal. That's so true. And it is not dependent on what political ideology you um, have or what politician you vote for, which I think is great news. I think that we don't have to put our hope on um, a certain governmental system. We don't have to put our hope on certain candidates. We don't have to put our hope on a certain party is really great news mm. because if history has taught us anything is that humans, as good as their intentions are, will eventually mess things mm -hmm. up, right? Which is why our hope is founded on Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, we've talked about how the New, New Testament is so much more explicit about the hope of resurrection than the old, yeah. right? Like, and I, I was going to ask you, Miguel, it, do you think that's because Jesus is present in the New Testament? I mean, there there does seem to be a shift, like a turning on a light bulb, and all of a sudden, I mean, the resurrection is everywhere, mm -hmm. found woven through all the different passages of 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 the New Testament. Is it because of what Jesus did? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think it's a perfect segue um, as we talk about what our hope is contingent on. Yeah. And you've done such a marvelous job at outlining that. It doesn't have to do with an ideology or with a system. Mm -hmm. It has to do with a person. Yeah. What this person does, though, is it gives us a way, way more complete picture of not only what who God is, but what God's plan for us mm -hmm. is. And so whereas in the Old Testament, the idea is God's plan is simply to get us to survive. Mm. In the New Testament, it seems like God's plan is to get human beings to thrive. Mm. And the way in which it's presented is by this possibility that up until that point seems foreign. And I love, I love that because it's the reality of Jesus, mm. right? That God isn't just about fulfilling our expectations. Mm -hmm. And we all know that human beings have, by nature, these needs, these needs that need to be met. But what I find fascinating about Scripture is that Scripture presents a God that doesn't give you what you need, 
because he goes so far beyond that which you need that what he is offering you is unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And so you get kind of these snapshots or these glimpses uh, in Jesus. So in Jesus, I think you're right. I think we see God's plan for us a bit more completely, even though Paul will say that we still see uh, through a glass uh, and uh, we see dimly, uh, but in him, uh, I think we that dim that dimness begins to clarify itself a bit. Yeah, I mean, Jesus didn't come in any way. We've talked about this in previous lessons that how Jesus didn't come in any way, that shape or form, in the way that they expected. Mm -hmm. Right? He was very unexpected. Right. And yet, what he did, <laughs> rising from the dead, that was also unexpected. Absolutely. It was beyond what they were they could possibly conceive. But man, when you see someone who was dead come back to life, mm -hmm. that has to change the way you think about life, mm -hmm. right? And it's what's interesting is that wasn't the first time he did it. He did bring other people back to life. He brought um, he brought the little girl mm -hmm. um, back to life. He brought Lazarus back to life. Right. So there were other times that he did it. But what do you think was so compelling for the disciples? Because when Jesus comes back to life, finally, the disciples mm -hmm. seem to get it mm -hmm. right. Like, whereas before they saw Lazarus come back to life, they saw the little girl come back to life and they still didn't get it. They still thought Jesus was about uh, conquering this world, setting up um, a political system, right. a rising, raising up the Israelite nation. Uh, 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 tossing off their yoke from the the Roman oppressors, those were all mixed into their uh, their ideology. When Jesus dies and comes back to life, that all changes. Mm. It's like almost 180 degrees. And even the Pharisees are surprised. Even the um, Sanhedrin are surprised because Peter and John they they behave completely different in the Book of Acts than they did. Right. In, in the book of Luke, right? There's this like, turnaround moment yeah. for them. What was so revolutionary about Jesus rising from the dead that just changed the way that they they approach life? So I think that what is, what is revolutionary, and you started uh, to talk about it. Um, so there's there's several experiences of resurrection, right? There's Jairus' daughter, there's the widow at uh, the son of the widow at Nain. There's obviously mm -hmm. Lazarus. There's all these experiences. So, and and there's experiences also in the new in the Old Testament, yeah, right? About um, and so that still to some degree is playing into the preconceptions that the Jews have, right? Mm -hmm. There there's this idea, and we've talked about it, that. The, the Messiah as a prophetic figure was going to be uh, and was going to replicate the kind of archetypical prophet that mm -hmm. you have in the Old Testament, and that is Elijah. And so you have in the Elijah and Elisha cycles, you have these experiences of resurrection. And so strange as those might be, they still function within a particular paradigm. Mm. The difference with Jesus is that this isn't, uh, a prophet raising somebody up. This mm. is God dying. Mm. And then this is God resurrecting. And so this individual wow. experience that would have been really powerful uh, for not only uh, the widow at Nain or Jairus' daughter or uh, Lazarus, but for their families, um, that is expanded in Jesus to encompass the whole world. Mm. And so it's not like 
the resurrection is to prove the power of God over death, although that definitely happens within Jesus. In Jesus, the resurrection is the ultimate, the ultimate signifier of the kingdom. It's the ushering mm. of a new age, right? And we hear this wow. throughout the Gospels. Jesus is saying, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The idea of, this, of the destruction of, of the temple, as you know, meant the end of the age for the Jews. This is the mm. cataclysmic event that signified the end of everything. Mm -hmm. And by Jesus appropriating that language, what he's actually saying is, in my death and resurrection, there is a new age that is being ushered in, mm. and it is, I think, as appropriately uh, titled in uh, this week's lesson, it is the age of hope. Mm. And so we are living not under, uh, I think the difference is in grace and law as uh, has happened a lot during our conversations within Christian cycles, right? Uh, before Jesus, we were under the law, and after Jesus, we're under grace. Um, I think... Uh, a better way of looking at it is before Jesus, there was hopelessness and uncertainty because mm -hmm. we didn't know. We had promises, but we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And after Jesus, a new age of hope has been ushered. Wow. So, I mean, it's powerful what you're saying that, that Jesus is already, even before he dies, he's pointing to his eventual death mm -hmm. and resurrection as being paradigm shifting, mm -hmm. right? That this is a this is the end of an old age and ushering in of a new age. And, you know, I didn't think about it, but you're right. I mean, what Jesus had done while he was living as a prophet, if people thought of him just as a prophet, other prophets had done. Mm -hmm. uh, Elijah, Elisha had, had raised, um, um, raised uh, a son from the dead, right? So th these things had happened, but all those people who had been raised from the dead had eventually died again, right? Right. So it's it's like it was just delaying the inevitable, right? Like these people are gonna, yeah, they're gonna get a few more years, but they're gonna die again. Right. But with Jesus, he was resurrected to eternal life. Right. Right. He never was gonna die again. Mm. He went up to heaven, and so and then and then he promises his disciples, "Where I'm going, I'm gonna I'm come gonna back and take point. you." So they. All of a sudden, the door was opened, and this uncertainty that you were talking about, they were living in uncertainty. Now that uncertainty had become like certainty. It become visual proof that they had mm. seen for themselves that this life was not all mm. there is. And that completely changed them. Wow, that's, yeah, I, I you know, you were talking about it, and it just clicked. Um, it's not just about heaven. Heaven mm -hmm. is, I mean, I'm excited about heaven as, yeah. as the next person is, primarily because I think it's a place where you can eat all kinds of sweets. And, and <laughs> um, so I'm excited about paradise as, as the next guy. Uh, but as, as, I, as you were talking, it just, it, it struck me that even heaven or paradise or whatever you want to call it, that wasn't unknown to the writers of the Old Testament, right? So we, we also know the story for example, of Enoch, mm. where God says, hey, we, we are so close. Let's not separate mm. ever. Um, I think the difference with Jesus is exactly what you're saying. It's the scope of it. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that it's not just individual. Mm. It's for everyone. Yes. And that is what's so hope-filling, yeah. that this this 
path, this door, as you said, that was opened, mm -hmm. is not one that very few and selected people, be that uh, Enoch or Elijah or Moses, uh, the, the power of resurrection that Elisha has, that's not for a selected few. Mm -hmm. It's for the whole of creation. Yeah. And so we can, even in the middle of what it what seems to be an extremely hopeless time mm -hmm. uh, with wars and with division and with violence, there's that hope mm -hmm. that that we always can can circle back to. Yeah. And so then when the when they think back to what Jesus says in like, for example, John chapter 14, um, that was in the lesson, uh -huh. do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place mm -hmm. for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you also may be where mm -hmm. I am. That has whole nother meaning for, right. for them. Now that they see where it is that Jesus mm -hmm. is going and that that door, like you said, mm -hmm. is open to them as well. And that it's not contingent, right? Mm -hmm. On So think about what Jesus, I am going to prepare a place mm -hmm. and I'm going to return for you. Mm -hmm. It's not like uh, you have to walk, as in Enoch's case, yeah. so close to me that I'll yeah. take that that somehow, some way, the lines between this world and, and, and the other world will blur. Or it's not like you have to be so revolutionary uh, and, and such a fantastic leader like Moses, mm. uh, where yes, you will taste the bitterness of death, but you also will taste the, the sweet delight of the afterlife. Or you mm. don't have to be this prophetic giant like Elijah, like Elijah, where, you know, the chariot will come down and take you, take you away. Because it's, we're, I don't measure up to those people. Yeah. But I do measure up to these scared disciples that are saying, that are asking that question that we all ask, right? Where are you going and can we come? And if we can't come, are you going to be gone long? Are you coming back? Yeah. This uncertainty uh, gets mitigated by the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to prepare the place. I'm going to go uh, through the uncertainty of the grave. I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to return and take you with me. Uh, there is then very little that you have to do except grasp on to the hope. That's so true. Yeah, so this certainty, although this uh, the, there's still uncertainty of when, right, mm -hmm. this is gonna happen, there is a certainty that it will mm. happen. And that's, I think, a great point that the that the lesson right. made was that the if it's happening is a much more important question than when it's happening. Although we, you know, we obviously living on this earth, we want to kind mm. of know the when, um, but the if is much more relevant because the if guarantees that no matter when we die, no matter when this happens or, or whether we are living when Christ returns, that we will be taken mm. with him. To yeah. Heaven. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's a beautiful way of, of kind of reorganizing um, yeah, I can just picture uh, the the early disciples waiting and waiting and waiting, and it doesn't happen, and they start to die off. Yeah, and they start to pass on their stories mm -hmm. because they're starting to, they're starting to die off. And two thousand years have passed, and we're still saying, when? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's 
that's the tightrope that we have to walk. Yeah. Um, it's a tightrope where, yes, we we because we're temporal beings, right? We're gonna we're gonna ask the when question. It's it's natural. It's human nature. Yeah. Uh, but what I loved about this week's lesson is it's it's trying to remind you uh, that. God isn't a temporal being. And so the when question might not be as central to this whole drama of, of salvation. The mm. when question might not be uh, what, what ultimately gives you hope. It's the, the certainty of uh, the second coming that provides that hope for us. Yeah. That Christ is coming no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and you see... I mean, in this pass, in this uh, lesson, we looked over some passages where you can see that even among the followers of Christ, there was still some confusion about that, and there was some anxiety mm -hmm. about the when and and the how. Because First um, Thessalonians chapter four mm -hmm. that was brought up, um, there we don't know exactly the reason for it, but there seems to be some confusion with with the Thessalonians whether what's going to happen to those people who have already died. Yeah. I mean, do we have to still be alive in mm -hmm. order for Christ to take? I mean, do we have to be um, uh, uh, taken up into heaven like Jesus was being still alive? Are there going to be people who died and, and go, go be able to go to heaven? And so there is some, some misunderstanding, some fear, some anxiety around that. And that's something that we can certainly, certainly, um, identify with growing up in a community that has always preached that Jesus is coming soon. Right. Right. And, and that soon meant Jesus is coming in my lifetime. Right. And yet there are many who, who came to Christ, who, who believe that Jesus is coming soon, who are now in their eighties, some mm -hmm. who have passed away and Jesus still hasn't come mm -hmm. yet. And the, the time challenge sometimes makes us question whether Jesus is coming mm. at all. Right? right. Yeah. And that's that's a difficult thing. And that's that is what Paul seems to be addressing mm -hmm. with these Thessalonians because they also believed that their sufferings. Yeah, this these sufferings were the the birth pangs of the Messiah. Right. So that we're going through this suffering so that the Messiah can come soon. But the Messiah hasn't come and all these people have right. died. So what's gonna happen? Mm. I mean, we, we haven't, you know, obviously gone through the same types of sufferings that they did, but the waiting is still there and wondering, the, does the fact that Jesus isn't coming in our lifetime negate the fact that he's coming at all? Yeah, that's that's the key, right? Um, I was reading uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and on, and I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you've read that many a time at a, at a graveside. Um, and it struck me that Paul, the primary purpose that Paul has for writing this to, to the Thessalonians is it's not to give, although we sometimes use it in this way, it's not to provide the point-by-point -point doctrinal expose on what happens after death that's not the point of of that per, of that passage the point of that passage is i mean he tells them for for crying out loud right he says therefore comfort one another with these words yeah. 
the point of the passage is to try to infuse hope into a community that is asking these questions, right? They're looking around and they're seeing that these apostles that knew and walked with Jesus are starting to to perish. Mm. They're hearing the story. They're seeing that their leaders are starting to perish. Mm. They're seeing that uh, even within uh, the Christian community, the scourge of death continues to be felt uh, and experienced. And so I I can imagine them saying, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And so instead of saying, instead of Paul recriminating and uh, castigating them for for a lack of faith, Paul tries to infuse a bit of hope into the dialogue. And I think that's where we that's where we make a mistake. Because the story of Jesus, the primary purpose of the story of Jesus, at least as as preached from from the pulpits of a denomination that believes in this idea of the coming of God. Mm -hmm. The story ought to be uh, shared for the purpose of injecting and infusing people's lives with hope. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, Mm -hmm. if your conversations aren't leading to a hope-filled and a hope-affirming place, then perhaps we need to change the tenor of our conversations. Mm -hmm. The second thing that, that I think we 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 need to do is let's follow uh just just from a utilitarian standpoint joey let's follow the question right let's follow the impossible possibility so maybe this isn't true right maybe it's it's a it's a really really good story mm-hmm. um that in that introduces all these concepts that are pretty unique uh, written by people that over over centuries that have really very little in common. But maybe, maybe, and that, by the way, is a miracle of in, in it of itself, but maybe. So maybe there is no Jesus. Uh, maybe there is no second coming. Maybe there is no resurrection. Maybe the fact that the, that the delay it means that there is nothing coming for us. What then? What is that? How does that impact the way that I am living my life today? And I will tell you, at least as as I've as I've thought about this a lot, hmm. it leaves me in a really bleak. It leaves me in a really bleak place. Yeah. And so, I don't know what the. I don't know what the advantage is from uh, in stepping into a space where we give up this hope. Mm. Uh, because if we're giving up this hope, then you need to fill that within your ideological paradigm with something else. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what what then do we fill it with? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, the great uh, Freud says is infantile regression. Mm. Um, well, I want to be a child. <laughs> uh, Nietzsche says that God that God is dead um, and that we've killed him. Well, I want him to be alive. Mm. Um, 
Sartre says that it's that God isn't coming, that there is nothing, and that that is radical freedom. Well, I don't feel free. Mm. I'm a prisoner of fear. And so all the other alternatives that we have to fill that in our ideological paradigm mm. seem to be much less conducive to wholeness and to health and to happiness than simply believing. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just just some some thoughts. Wow, wow! So Christ coming and and dying and resurrecting fills our lives with so much hope. But if Christ didn't die, I mean, you're like really using Paul's argument, right? If Christ really didn't raise rise from the dead, the alternative is a life with very little hope, right? Um, uh, in Macbeth. Um, mm. William um, Shakespeare, he writes, um, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm. I mean, he's he's speaking out of the mouthpiece of a man who's very depressed because right. his wife has just died, right? But I'm sure there's many a people who have felt that way, that life is just meaningless. I mean, Ecclesiastes, mm -hmm. right, is filled with that sentiment. If there is no hope, of something beyond this life. If there is no hope that Jesus provides for us, if that door hasn't been opened, then it is. it feels very meaningless. It feels like it signifies nothing. We live these 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, if you live in the blue zone of life, and then what's next? What's, what, yeah. is, what is the meaning of that? In a thousand years, will anybody even remember that a person named Miguel, a person named Joey, um, ever existed, right? There is no hope. And so living with hope, what really is the downside mm -hmm. of living with the hope is the yeah, that's, you seem to be making. That's and that's that's the argument, right, that that Paul makes. It's it's an argument that Pascal makes mm -hmm. in his the wager. It's it's an argument that I think is is made uh throughout uh the history of of humankind. And I think so I think I wanna I I I want I I want to be clear with this. There are rational reasons to believe in the resurrection. It's not like we're just believing in it mm -hmm. for utilitarian reasons, right? It's not like we're just saying, look, the the alternative is so horrifying that we're just gonna accept this blindly. Well, it's not blindly. I mean, you can I can point out to a couple. For example, there is something unnatural about death, mm. right? There is a reason why every single uh, civilization in the, in the known civilization reacts against a repulsion towards, towards death. There is a reason why uh, people that have no Judeo-Christian framework say, well, there is something after afterlife, right? This idea of this is all you get is within the history of humankind uh, rather new. And so if death was simply part and parcel of life in our existence here, then I wonder why we feel so repulsed by it. There's mm. there's some something, uh, as, as C.S. Lewis talks about, something inside of us that reacts negatively mm -hmm. uh, against that. And I think we react negatively against that. And Lewis, I think, makes a beautiful argument, right? 
you feel hungry because you know that there's something out there that satiates that hunger, mm. right? That's So the feeling, the needing something is a direct proof, at least in Lewis's mind, that that thing is actually out there. Well, we feel repulsed about, de about death because inside all of us, I think, there is something that says there, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. There's the idea of the resurrection itself, the language that is used for the resurrection, mm. uh, the witness that is used for the resurrection, the way in which the stories are used for the resurrection, the fact that uh, beautiful as scripture is, it is it's, it's not this perfect, uh, smooth narrative. It's it's got jagged edges, and so for 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 those of us that do a little bit of critical analysis and textual analysis, we see it and we say, "Hey, um, yeah, it's there. It's true." And so I think in the end, you have two options and only two options. Either this is real, um, or it was. This this tale forged uh, by a bunch of people who had no tools to forge such a tale. And, and if that's the case, then kudos to them. That's miraculous in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, just the turnaround that you see, there's a, there is a realism. I, I love how you, you describe it. There is a realism to the narrative that if you were just making up the story yourself that you wouldn't see in the story and then the fact that there is this turnaround that happens with the, these disciples um they're telling this tale to people who had seen jesus mm -hmm. who had lived who had who had heard jesus's stories and they're going and and they're seeing these disciples i mean that's why a lot of historians who who don't believe that jesus rose from the dead they lean towards okay there must have been some kind of mass delusion because there's no way Either the right. all of them had some kind of mass delusion or they actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. That seems to be the only options you're left with because, because the fact remains that these disciples, the ways that they were willing to die for this, I mean, this is the argument that that Lee Strobel makes mm -hmm. in, in the case for Christ, right? That, that the disciples were willing to go to such lengths to sacrifice everything and most of them even die for this, the fact that they, they did that must have meant that they actually believed what they saw, mm -hmm. right? And 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 Paul's point is that it's not just them. There were hundreds of people right. who saw. It wasn't just these 12 people. So if it was a mass delusion, it was a massive delusion across people who were not even necessarily there mm -hmm. oh, at the event of Jesus's death right? That they they might have been other places and yet they saw the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. So that's just, it's just a powerful thing that seems very unlikely that, that it actually didn't happen. There's a lot of historical evidence. The fact that people push back is because it it's not something you see every day. Right. That doesn't happen every day, which is why there's this tension of, of people being unwilling to accept it. So, and with, with, you know, with this whole new, uh, over maybe the past 20 years, there's been this renewed interest in examining mm -hmm. the crucifixion and the quote, quote unquote resurrection in Jesus. And one of the theories that, that is put out there is that yes, Jesus did hang on a cross because there really, historically, there isn't much debate about a couple things. 
There's not much debate about the fact that there was a man named Jesus. There's not much debate about the fact that he was crucified. Um, So (laughs) some of the historians out there say, well, he was crucified, but he didn't die. He he was actually pulled down from the the cross alive. Um, and then somehow, right, this this man that <laughs> that had been crucified by the empire for sedition was granted safe passage across across the empire and established a new life. Sure, you can you can advocate that, uh, but the Romans were really good at one thing and one thing only, right? And that was murdering people. They were good at murdering people and at, cre- at, at codifying uh, legal texts. And so the fact that they would have pulled someone, that they would have allowed someone that is accused of sedition on the highest of holy days for the Jews to escape with his life and then grant him safe passage throughout the empire to start a new life and then allow his followers to spread this, these ideas throughout the, throughout the empire and in in a sense, participate in that cover-up mm-hmm. as this thing is exploding and actually tearing at the very social fabric of the empire without saying, by the way, no, he didn't die. We <laughs> we know where he is. Just that, the fact that the empire then would have had to be complicit in the cover-up seems to defy expectation. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't agree, and, and I don't agree because of that reason and some other reasons that if we had time we'd get into with the fact that the that the Romans uh, partook in the cover-up. So let's for a moment believe that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were right. Mm. Let's believe that somehow, some way, the the uh, the disciples came and robbed the tomb, mm. and this was an elaborate story, and then they recorded it. Okay, let's go to John chapter 20. Mm. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the tomb had been removed from the entrance. Who went to the tomb? Mary. Strike one. Mm. If you're writing this to advocate a cover-up that would convince the Jews and this is all a story that you've made up, then you don't let the first witness of the resurrection be a woman. Yeah. Right? Because a woman's testimony in any Jewish court of law is considered inadmissible and faulty at best. Mm. So the fact that John starts, and by the way, John isn't the only one of the gospel writers that does this. We're just, mm. we've, we've been living right now in John, so we're, we're going to go to John's account of it. Um, the fact that they choose to allow women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection indicates already that the editorial process, if this is a story that you're making up, already starts to break up in the seams. Now, uh, she saw that the stone that the tomb had been that the stone had been removed for the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, "They have taken him out of the Lord, and we don't know where they have put him." So she kind of is is already advocating for this position that exists now. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He then he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but he did not go in. Simon Simon Peter went in behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' 
head. The cloth was still lying in his place, separate, uh, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached, uh, who had reached the tomb first, also went in inside. He saw and believed. And uh, they still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then they went to the disciples, uh, went back to the disciples where they were staying. Did you get all that? It's really confusing, right? So Mary sees this, this empty tomb. She runs, she tells the disciples, hey, they've taken the Lord. There in runs uh, John and Peter. And for some reason, John feels it necessary to say, hey, by the way, John outran Peter. But when John got to the tomb, he stopped at, at the tomb. He looked, he peeked in, saw the linen and everything folded. And then Peter kind of mumbling and bumbling, catches up, runs inside, sees, and then uh, he he sees. And then once Peter walks in, then John regains his uh, courage, walks in. He believes they really don't know what's going on. And then they go back to the disciples. Mm. That's a really convoluted story. Yeah. And here's the beauty of convoluted stories. When you see a story that is extremely convoluted in the details that it is providing, it is probably convoluted because you're recalling what actually happened. If you're building something from scratch, then the story doesn't get put together this way. It probably gets put to, it probably begins in chapter 20, verse 11. Mm. Um, Right where Mary is outside of the tomb, except again, it wouldn't have been Mary. You would have had the twelve outside of the tomb, and or at least more than one witness, because you needed more than one witness for the testimony to be admissible. So, just the way that the gospel writers construct the story mm. isn't conducive to this argument that it's this elaborate hoax that was a that managed to fool everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And, and where is the miraculous entrance of Jesus? Where is like this, this is, that's, that's, you're burying the lead, right? When you're telling this story, Jesus doesn't actually show up in their midst until much later. Right. They get all these hints that Jesus is alive. They're confused. They're looking right. around. Like if you were just telling the story, why would you include those details? Exactly. Right. The only reason to include those details is that it actually happened. they happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's the point of, if you're a disciple, let's just, let's follow this. Um, and this is a really fun exercise because it's something we talk about all the time. So let's just follow the idea. Let's follow the idea. Let's think that they made this up. Well, what's the purpose of that? Well, evangelization, right? You want people to kind of come over to this new sect that you're, that you are participating in. So you would think that the big aha moment is this, this reveal, right? Jesus appears to them and they believe, mm. except they don't believe. Mm -hmm. Jesus appears to them and Thomas puts his hands in, in the side, um, which by the way, if you're trying to convince Jews that this is Jesus, you don't put the, your hands inside the, the wounds and the flesh because you're unclean. That's already culturally in a purity culture mm. uh, that's already a, you're already creating dissonance with your audience so that's already problematic but say you can get them to see past that what do the disciples do immediately after mm. they they lock themselves in that house for another seven days and then they go out fishing yeah and so if you're, if you're making up this story as a document that is trying to uh, evangelize people into believing in this made-up tale, this is not the way 
that you do it. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the construction of the story um, is, is I think, uh, the biggest testimony we have and the biggest witness we have for the resurrection being a real event in mm-hmm. time and place. Yeah, so like we said, there is a realism that seems to flow in the story because if it was a made-up story, it was it's not made up to really convey the message mm-hmm. that you're trying to mm-hmm. convey. They're actually giving details of what happened to them. And like we said, by the way that they lived their lives after this mm-hmm. point, the revolutionary change that we, mm-hmm. we pointed to, it really seems that they believed it. Yeah. Right? I mean, 2,000 years later, um, I mean, if we believe, and I guess that's that's a way to end today, is to talk about what revolutionary change does that make in our life, right? right. Because for the disciples, it was a 180-degree change for them. They they saw, they saw, they thought Jesus was going to set up a kingdom here on earth, and that whole dream fell apart when, when Jesus died right? They, they ran away. They betrayed Jesus. Um, Simon Peter is, you know, saying that he doesn't know Jesus. You know, they're, they're all of this. Only one disciple is present at the crucifixion mm. of Jesus. Their whole life has ended and they're just hiding somewhere, waiting for the authorities to take them in. And then this happens. And then when they're in that upper room and they come out of their upper room the second time, it's completely different. It their whole changed. life is different. And how Peter and John um, approach and they deal with with the Sanhedrin, these people that they were hiding from. And now they have this boldness and they're saying, you know, you can do whatever you want to us. We're not going to stop preaching this because this is true. Mm. Completely different. Mm. Completely different life. And so that I think. In a, in a roundabout way, Joey, leads us back to the very beginning of our conversation. Yeah there was this undominable, unyielding, uncompromising hope Mm. to the lives lived by the early church. It was hope that had them face a people that they were petrified of. It was hope that allowed them to stand against the immense and insurmountable a lot, in in many cases, pressures of the empire. It was hope that drove them to the arena. It was hope that caused them not to recant on the sands of the arena. It was hope that sustained them through the great persecutions of the second and early third century. It was hope. It was and that i think is is ultimately the question we I, we can spend another hour delineating reasons why belief in the resurrection is rational mm-hmm. but in the end the question isn't that the question that we need to perhaps ans- ask and answer is what do we put our hope on? Mm. Because human beings, by nature, we are hope-filled beings, mm. right? Every single breath we take is an act of hope and faith. Mm. Uh, the fact that you and I uh, will get paid this week 
and there will be money in the bank account for the holiday season uh, with the economic situation as is, right? Without seeing the money, uh, actually holding it in our hands. That's that's a hope filled and a hope generating yeah. event, right? Uh, everything we do is on the basis of hope. Mm. And so the question then is, what are we putting our hope on? Mm -hmm. Where are we placing our hope? And I think the ultimate point that we're trying to make is that these men and women knew where to place their hope and that allowed them to leave deep to live uh, leave deeply meaningful legacies to us and to live deeply meaning meaningful lives. And so I think that's ultimately the power of hope. It, it, it's mm. reflected in the legacies we leave mm. and the lives we lead. Yes. I love your point that hope is the reason we get up every morning. Because if there was no hope, there'd be no reason no. to get up, right? We live trusting in a lot of different mm. things. But ultimately, what, what you're pointing to and what the disciples discovered and what we followers of Christ have discovered in our lives is... Ultimately, our hope is not in our paychecks. Mm -hmm. It's not in our, our businesses that are going to pay us. Like, even if all of those structures fall apart, we have hope in a God who has proven to be worth our faith in him mm -hmm. because he rose from the dead. That's, that's beautifully said. Yeah. Let's pray, Joey. Let's pray. Our God of hope, we want to thank you for giving us hope, for being willing not to leave us to our own devices on this world, in a world that had no hope, that was just slowly making its way to destruction and death. But you intervened, you stepped into this world, you've stepped into this world over and over and over again. And finally, you stepped in physically by being born here on earth, living and dying and resurrecting to show us, opening that door to show us mm. that there is life beyond the cycle of death and destruction that we're caught in. You have shown us hope. You've proven hope to us. And so we ask that we lean and depend on you, our sole foundation of hope. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we hope then that God goes with you throughout this week. For those of you who are traveling this week for Thanksgiving, we hope that you have meaningful reunions. To those of you who are staying at home and maybe receiving family, may, we hope that those be moments that you cherish until we hope to see you again next week. May God richly bless you. Mm -hmm.